Deuteronomy chapter 19, starting at verse 1, 1 to 14. When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he has given you, and when you have driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourselves three cities in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Determine the distances involved and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, so that a person who kills someone may flee for refuge to one of these cities. This is the rule concerning anyone who kills a person and flees there for safety. Anyone who kills a neighbor unintentionally without malice aforethought. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him even though he is not deserving of death, since he did it to his neighbor without malice aforethought. This is why I command you to set aside for yourselves three cities. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he promised an oath to your ancestors, and gives you the whole land he promised them, because you carefully follow all these laws I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk always in obedience to him, then you are to set aside three more cities. Do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance, and so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. But if out of hate someone lies in wait assaults and kills a neighbor, and then flees to one of these cities, the killer shall be sent for by the town elders, be brought back from the city, and be handed over to the avenger of blood to die. Show no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood, so that it may go well with you. Do not move your neighbor's boundary stones set up by your predecessors in the inheritance you receive in the land your Lord, the Lord your God, is giving you to possess. And then to Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. My name's uh, Phil. It'd be lovely to get the chance to meet you afterwards. Let's pray, and then we'll look at God's word together. 
Our Father God, we pray that you would give us the humility to recognize that we are not as loving as we should be, that we fail to love, that we need your help to love. Our Father, we pray also that you would give us the humility to recognize that we need to learn from your word if we are going to navigate the complexities of life in a way which honors you. Amen. Uh, Tom alluded to this uh, in his prayers that uh, Jason and Rachel Roach, who were part of CCM a number of years ago, they left here to plant a church over in Battersea, uh, the Bridge Church on the Ethelberger Housing Estate. And this week, a 19-year-old lad who uh, Jason knew reasonably well, called Lejean Richards, was stabbed to death 100 yards from Jason's front door. Dispute turned violent, and a young man is dead. God's word's clear. The sixth word, the sixth commandment says, you shall not murder. That's what it's about. Sounds simple enough. But actually, the sixth word, the sixth commandment, uh, it reaches out far further than London's knife crime. And once you start digging into the sixth commandment, you realize you, are, you open a whole can of worms. And it impacts some of the most controversial issues that there are today. How you understand this commandment will determine what you decide on abortion, on capital punishment. If you're a doctor here, it will impact how you vote in the Royal College of Physicians um, poll about changing their stance on euthanasia this month. It impacts what you think about war. Suicide, alcohol, tobacco, drugs, exercise, diet, extreme sports. It reaches far and wide. And these are very serious issues. And you've got to think about them now. You need to have worked out what your position is on euthanasia long before a parent starts to mutter about quality of life and not wanting to be a burden. You need to have worked it out long before an aging parent starts to talk in those terms. And long before a friend confesses, I'm pregnant and I just do not know what to do. That's not the time to be starting to think about these things. But actually, as we'll see, the sixth commandment also applies for most of us in far more everyday ways. It speaks to how you behave, how you think about and how you treat other people. And especially those who annoy you those who bore you, those who let you down, those who hate you, and those who hurt you. It'll reach into every area of our lives. Now, we're uh, in the middle of this uh, series on the Ten Commandments, or as the the Bible puts it, the Ten Words. And we've been seeing that God's laws are not uh, entry standards that you've got to meet if you're going to be part of God's people. They're not how you get accepted by God. Well, you've got to, you've got to meet this standard. Here it is. Once you've met this, then you can consider yourself a Christian. Instead, they're the handbook for how to live a full and a healthy life once you've received God's free gift of membership into his people, of forgiveness and acceptance. They're, if you like, they're a recipe for a tasty meal or a map leading to treasure. Life is just so much richer and better if you, if you follow the recipe. If you follow the map. 
Now, before we get there into the detail of the sixth commandment and see what, what recipe of life God is serving up for us here, uh, it is just worth stepping back briefly for a moment and thinking about the structure of how the Old Testament law works. I think it'll really help us this week to just spend a moment on that. We've got a slide here. So you can, you can split the Old Testament law really into three levels. So Jesus, when he was asked, yeah, how do you summarize the whole Old Testament law? What's the, what's the first and greatest commandment? He said, the first and greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the overarching principle of how God wants us to live. He wants you to love him, and he wants you to love other people. Well, okay, but what does that mean? So God answers that by giving 10 commandments, 10 concrete summarizing statements that show what does this love look like at a most fundamental level? Well, love God means don't worship other gods and don't make any images of of God because you'll misunderstand what he's like. Uh, Love people means don't kill them, don't commit adultery. it, It gives 10 concrete summarizing statements that show you what it looks like to love God and love people. So overarching principle, uh, 10 concrete summarizing commands, and then you've got um, all the, the practical outworkings and the details of life. Those are the strange sounding chapters if you've ever strayed into them in the Old Testament about don't wear uh, clothes with mixed materials, oops, uh, don't, um, uh, don't have uh, shellfish on your menu, and, don't, and you must make sure you build parapets on your roof. We'll come back to that one. What they basically are, we will as well. Seriously, it's a very important commandment. Uh, They tell us, what does it look like to to love God and to love people if you're an ancient Israelite, when God's people are a nationally defined group living in an agricultural society? In other words, they ground it in the realities of one particular culture, ancient Israel. Now, those rules, they don't bind us today. But as we learn, what did it look like in ancient Israel for the Ten Commandments to be grounded in daily life? As we learn how, how those commands got translated into daily life back then, it helps us work out how do I honor God's law today in a very different cultural context. It just gives us uh, some understanding of, of the way in which things work. Okay, uh, the... As we move, though, from, from the sort of overall principle of the law, there is one, one other thing that we really need to get our heads around. But this is actually getting into the sixth commandment, and that is the value of human life. Genocide, war, murder, manslaughter. Does anybody here disagree that they are wrong? I didn't think so. Why? Why is human life valuable? Why is it wrong to take a human life? Believe it or not, that's actually a very difficult question to answer these days. If you turn to the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it declares that every human has the right to life. But it doesn't explain why. There's no because. It's simply stated as an axiom. Every human has the right to life. But there's no scientific reason why human life should be particularly privileged. Why should you protect human life rather than or over and above the life of a chimpanzee or a tree or a virus? 
There's no scientific reason for it. But the Bible gives a clear, a strong, and a robust rationale for treating human life as uniquely valuable. And back in Genesis chapter 9, God says, And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each man too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. For whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. There you go. That is the reason that every human life is valuable because every human being is made in the image of God. Men and women bear the image of God. Now all creation, if you like, bears the fingerprints of the creator who molded it. But we're different. You and I do more than than just show evidence of God's craftsmanship. We bear his image. We reflect God in a way that no other living creature does. And that is true of every human. There's no distinction made in the Bible between the very, very old and the very, very young. There's no distinction made between men and women on this. It is as true uh, of a Nobel Prize winner as it is of someone with dementia. And it's equally true of Olympic athletes and those with profound physical disabilities. Each and every human being bears the image of God. And so every single human life is valuable. As C.S. Lewis put it, you've never met an ordinary person. There's a minister who um, ministered for a number of years just up the road here at All Souls called John Stott. Became very famous. He wasn't the sort of man who sought fame at all. Incredibly humble man. But he became really quite famous. And there would be dignitaries would come to his church to, to visit. And it wouldn't be uncommon that you'd have this situation that he would be deep in conversation with a little old lady on a Sunday morning after church. And there would be a couple of visiting archbishops and a president of some state and the pope and whoever else you know would be sort of queuing up to, to chat to him sort of looking at their watches with their minders and flunkies floating around while he's just oblivious just chatting to this lovely little old lady and uh, I the, it gets told that the um once or twice um one of his uh, the assistants working at the church would get roundly rebuked for sort of tugging his sleeve and say john there's there's actually somebody really rather important who's here to see you more important than her She's made in the image of God. Oh, <laughs> uh, guess not then, really. What's more, the Lord Jesus saw fit to die for her. And the Holy Spirit thinks she's a fitting home for himself to live in. And you say more important than her. <laughs> All human beings are important. Every human matters to God and should matter to us. And that brings us to the sixth commandment. I know it's a long introduction, but we need to see the biblical background if we're going to understand this commandment life. Uh, Rightly, it's because it's a very, very brief command. You'll see there, don't murder means we must value life. It's actually only two words, uh, Deuteronomy 5.17. It's only two words in the Hebrew. You shall not murder is the English. But immediately we come to a problem. Because there is no English word that really translates properly the Hebrew word rasak which is translated murder in our Bibles. I mean, is it 
all killing in Deuteronomy 5.17 or just murder. Now remember, the Ten Commandments are, are summary statements, ten concrete commands. And so we resolve a question like this, of what exactly is meant by looking at the rest of the laws that flow out from it to see, well, what, what was intended? And what you find is that deliberate murder is clearly prohibited. And that includes where you intend to hurt somebody, but maybe you didn't think you would kill them. So in Exodus 21, 12 to 19, we read, if two men are having a fight and one of them attacks the other and during the fight he picks up a rock or an iron bar and kills the other with it. Well, even if he didn't intend to kill him, if he attacked him and he strikes him in a way that the guy dies, then he's guilty of murder. Deliberate murder is clearly wrong. But then unintentional accidental killing is also wrong what we call manslaughter. Uh, that long reading we had in Deuteronomy 19, which explains that if you're out in the, in the forest chopping wood, your axe head flies off and <laughs> kills your friend. That is a serious matter. Typically in ancient societies, what would then take place is that someone from the victim's family would come after you and they would avenge the blood. And so a blood feud would develop between the families and misery would run down the generations. But God wanted things to be different in Israel. So he, he had them set up these cities of refuge. And if you'd killed somebody accidentally, you would run to the city of refuge. And they would look after you there. They would protect you there. Uh, there'll be a trial to check whether you, it was murder or manslaughter. And if it was manslaughter, then you'd be protected in the city of refuge. But you could never leave it until the high priest has died. In other words, in some way, the, the, the eventual death of the high priest atoned for this manslaughter, which does seem quite over the top. I mean, it was an accident. It wasn't like you tried to kill him. It was just an accident. So why, why this whole big procedure, and why do you have to wait in this city until the high priest dies? Well, the point is that human life is so incredibly valuable that it is not a small thing for someone to die accidentally if you're involved. And you don't go swinging axes unless you're really sure that the axe is safe. And additionally, human life is so, so precious that a human can't be killed without the death being atoned for somehow. And that leads to, to one of the more bizarre of the Old Testament rules. Um, a couple of pages over from Deuteronomy 19. If you turn to Deuteronomy 22 on page 199, you read verse 8. When you build a new house, make a parapet round your roof so you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from your roof. Now the reason is back then, when relatives came to stay, they would sleep on your roof. Now there is something to be said for this. Um, uh, though my parents are in their 80s and our roof is sloping, so I have never enforced that one at home yet. Um, but the point is you don't want someone rolling off your sleep and dying when they've come to stay. So you build a rim, a parapet, around the edges of the house. It's, well, what does that mean? Well, when you make a car, you have seat belts. And you make sure that the, you have uh, an MOT system to check the brakes every year. It's, it, you, you're careful about life. That's what it's saying. You don't, you don't just allow life to be taken lightly. You protect it. So deliberate killing and negligent killing are prohibited. But more than that, there is a, there is a legal framework which says you, you try to do everything you can to protect life. You treat life as precious. 
But the commandment doesn't actually prohibit all killing. The ancient translation of uh, you shall not kill was not right. Because the Old Testament does allow capital punishment, some wars, and self-defense. But you must be clear, all are very, very strictly regulated. Uh, There's no carte blanche for God's people to go off on crusades. And nor are people hung for stealing a loaf of bread in the Old Testament. It doesn't work like that. But in certain very limited circumstances, God commands his people to act as his instrument of judgment in war, in the book of Joshua. But it's very limited and it's very, very strictly regulated. And likewise, God calls for the death penalty in some situations. Only for the most serious of crimes like murder... And Numbers 35.30 says you must never execute someone on the, on the basis of one witness. Must be multiple witnesses. So you're not, you've not got people sort of being hung because of a, a misplaced scrap of misread DNA or anything. It's not like that. It's very carefully regulated. And thirdly, uh, killing in self-defense is also permitted in some circumstances. But again, very carefully regulated. So Exodus 22, 2-3 says, Look, if someone breaks into your house at night, and there's a fight, and they get killed, that's all right. You're not guilty of bloodshed. But if they break in in daytime, then you, and you kill them, that's murder. Which is a very sensible rule. Uh, in the days before electric lighting at night, it would be terrifying to have someone break into your house, pitch darkness, you know, no idea if they're armed, they've come to kill you or steal from you but in daytime when you can get help and you can see what happened what's happening it's a very different situation so you see even even where the old testament permits bloodshed killing it's very very carefully regulated don't murder flows out of the principle we are to love other people and it looks in practice like be very, very careful individually and as, as a culture with human life. Treat it as precious. Don't take it lightly. And so let me say to all of us that the starting point in any discussion must be human life is immensely valuable. You've got to have something very, very heavy to put in the other side of the scales to outweigh the seriousness of taking the life of someone made in the image of God. Now, I'm not going to give us rules at this point, but here is a principle, a way to think. When you find yourself agreeing with the death of another human, whether at the start of life in abortion or at the end of life in euthanasia or anywhere in between, you need to ask, what cause, what end is so great that it can outweigh the fact that this human is made in the image of God? Anytime you find yourself thinking it's okay to take life, you've got to ask yourself, is the cause great enough that it outweighs that? Now, we're going to have a question time, as, uh, as we said earlier, um, up in the, in the balcony, in the balcony room at the back there, around eight, and we'll be talking in particular about abortion and euthanasia. Very sensitive uh, and very serious subjects. And there's just not the time in, in five minutes as part of a sermon to, to address them properly. So there's a chance for proper, proper discussion and debate up there. Uh, so do come along if you'd like to talk about that. And if you'd like to think through um, 
how am I supposed to view these things? And, and how do I discuss them with people who disagree with me? That sort of thing. But the first point is, don't murder means more than just don't murder. It means value life. Secondly, murderous acts begin with hate-filled hearts. So what we've just been considering is the, is the context into which Jesus speaks when he says the famous words that we read from Matthew 5. So do flick up Matthew 5. It's on page uh, 969. Matthew 5, page 969. <coughs> so verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, Racha is a rude, abusive insult. And and you fool is a moral judgment. It's not saying, oh, you muppet, when someone spills their drink. It's a serious accusation of gross moral failings. It's a big thing. And the point Jesus is making is this. Look, murder is just anger that has run its course. It's gone from the heart, through the mouth to the the violent words, and into the hands to the violent acts. The sixth commandment is not broken only when you stick a knife into somebody. It is broken when you start harboring in your heart the resentment, thinking the the angry, bitter thoughts and blurting out the brutal words that might lead some people to commit murder. Ever since Cain killed Abel in Genesis 4, we've known that murder begins in the human heart. Do you remember how how that story went? Abel made an offering to God and his offering was accepted. Cain's wasn't and Cain became very, very angry and God warned Cain. He said, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. But Cain wasn't in a listening mood. Cain wanted to nurture his anger and Cain allowed the anger to grow and swell until he picked up a rock and smashed his brother's head in, murdered him in cold blood. The anger and the murder are different. Anger is not murder, but they're not separate. Anger leads to murder. When it's expressed in my heart, it's called anger. When it's expressed with my hands, it's called murder. Now, there is such a thing as righteous anger in the Bible, but that's not what's in view here in these verses. In these verses, it's the, it's the wrongful anger. And he says, look, when you burn with anger, Jesus says, when you burn with anger, you break the sixth commandment because the sixth commandment is part of God's will that you love other people and you cannot be loving people who you're burning with anger against the problem of course is that other people are so very annoying and especially they are and the closer you get to them the more annoying you find they are The closer you get to people, the more opportunities you have to wind each other up and provoke anger. I heard an interview with a married couple who'd been married 60 years. And the the guy admitted that they'd they'd had some pretty difficult times over those 60 years. And the interviewer asked, did you ever consider divorce during your 60 years? He said, divorce? Never. Murder? Once or twice. 
you know, the closer the relationship, the more likely it is that we will provoke anger. And we can laugh about it, but actually we know that in those close relationships, it can be a brutal thing, that anger. And I think, although women and men both get angry, it is a particular problem for the men here. It is a particular problem. And beware, it is no small thing. It is linked to murder. It doesn't matter that the the upbringing and the the self-control that you have mean that you'd never actually acted out. The problem with anger is not only that it might lead to murder. The problem with anger is that it reveals that in my heart, I am harboring towards someone who bears the image of God. Someone to whom I owe a duty of love. And I am harboring bitter hatred towards them. It's wrong in and of itself. So do not be easily provoked to anger. That is not a good habit. Do not allow yourself to just fly off the handle at the smallest provocation. I've got a really ugly insight into the, in my own heart. Uh, when I ordered pizza a little while ago, I do like my pizza. Um, my pizza has a very special place in my heart and my stomach. And, there, and I was very hungry. And I ordered the pizza and I counted down the minutes. And half an hour came and half an hour went and hungry became hangry. And a little bit tense and I phoned up and was a little bit brief and abrupt. And no, it's all right. Just round the corner, boss. Just round the corner. Half an hour became an hour. Phoned up, got a different answer. Every time I phoned, a more evasive, dishonest answer. And buddy, and it was absolutely steaming mad. It was an hour and a half for me to get my pizza. And I was furious. I had to stop myself from shouting at the delivery driver. Who I'm sure had nothing to do with the mess up. I was just steaming mad. It was a pizza. It is not a small thing. And yet so easily we just blow up with anger at God's image bearers. And you and I need to start to get a grip on that. You need to get a grip on the anger on the roads on the tube, in the office, at home. Do not be ruled by your feelings. Learn to control them. Don't just indulge the frustration. Don't just nurture the anger. Work hard at relating with grace and kindness to God's image bearers. Remind yourself regularly As you start to feel the red mist rise, this bears the image of God. Be careful what you think. Murderous acts begin with hate-filled hearts. What's the answer? Give your life for others. Actually, you know what? Jesus pushes things a whole lot further. Uh, Just when we think, gosh, that's quite hard. Not only have I got to not murder, I've got to not get angry with people. Turn over a page. Matthew five forty three. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If we're really to live out the sixth commandment, we have to go a lot further than just not committing negative acts. Got to remember that the sixth commandment is a, is a concrete statement to help us work out how to love people. And there's no asterisk on people 
Accept people you're related to. Accept people you work with. Accept people who wind you up. Accept people who get off the tube before you've had a chance to get in. It doesn't say any of that. It just says people. And that includes enemies. It includes people who frustrate, annoy, hurt, let you down. How on earth do you find the power to love like that? To love uh, not just in theory, but in practice, people who've hurt you. Who do, how can you find the, the love not to respond with anger and resentment when people have genuinely done bad things that have affected you? How can you become the sort of person who blesses rather than seeks vengeance on those who've hurt you? To make things brutally real, Lejean's sister goes to Jason's church. How does she keep this commandment rather than seek vengeance? How can she turn from hatred and contemplate at some point forgiveness? The answer is found at the cross, and that can sound so, so trite and Christian, but it is anything but. Because when you go to the real cross on which Jesus Christ died, you find three things that you and I need if we're going to learn to love rather than hate. You find love, you find forgiveness, and you find punishment. Firstly, at the cross, we find God's love. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. We can only love other people if we receive enough love ourselves. It is not natural to love your enemies. It is not natural to turn away from anger and instead respond with grace and love. You can only do that if you've received a crazy, reckless, ridiculous love like that yourself. And that is exactly what you receive at the cross. And it's, when you think about it, it is the most remarkable irony. The God who is so careful about human life that he says you've got to put a, a parapet on the edge of your roof and you, you can't swing an axe without checking the head is carefully put on, recklessly pours out his own life, becomes a human so that he can just throw his life away. But he does it out of love for you and for me. When we rejected and condemned our creator, the God who gave us the right to defend ourselves as well in his law, he didn't defend himself. He allowed us to kill him because he loves us and wants to save us. That is love. A God who dies for you and for me. Secondly, we receive God's forgiveness at the cross when we provoked his holy righteous anger. When we deserved his wrathful eternal punishment, he chose instead to suffer that punishment for us in our place. And in the place of judgment, he gives us forgiveness, mercy, and grace. You know, as humanity, think of how we treat God. He sends his son to us to save us, and we kill him. And God responds by adopting us as his children through the death of his son. Every sin forgiven, paid in full at the cross. Love, forgiveness. But we find more than just love and forgiveness at the cross. At the cross, we also find justice. And this matters. Because when you look at the cross, 
you don't just see an extravagant statement of love. You see sin being punished in Jesus Christ. Divine justice is poured down on his head on the cross. When you look at the cross, you see absolute guarantee that one day God will bring judgment on every wicked act. No one will get away with it. Justice will be done. Sin will be punished. Wickedness will get its full reward on the final day. And Jesus' death is the down payment, the proof. As he suffers in our place, we see here is a God who will punish sin. He punished it in his son on the cross. And he'll punish it in full on judgment day on those who do not turn to him. And that really, really matters when you've been deeply wounded and wronged. As I know some here this evening will have been. When others have hurt you brutally and have got away with it. It is very, very hard to let go of the the desire for vengeance. Sometimes it's not enough to say, I must forgive. Sometimes you need to know God will punish. And you don't have to hold on to the, the anger and the bitterness because you know God will do the judging. On the cross you see God's love, the cross you see God's forgiveness, and the cross you see God's justice. And so the cross enables love when there ought to be hate. There was a, it was, must have been two years ago now, um, another victim of knife crime, uh, Stephen Lawrence's father, Neville, his son, of course, um, brutally knifed to death in a, in a racist attack back in 1993. Many of the people involved got away with it. And he really came back to his Christian faith a couple of years ago, and he said this, extraordinary words from the, the father of Stephen Lawrence. He said, to be a Christian, you have to forgive people for what they've done. So in order to be a Christian, I decided I'm going to forgive all those people who were involved in my son's murder. It is one of the hardest decisions I've ever made. And I think it will be the hardest thing I will ever make or do in my lifetime. But he'd encountered the cross. And so he was able to love, not hate. And it begs the question of each of us. Have I had a genuine, life-changing encounter with the cross of Jesus Christ? And one of the key ways I'll know is whether I can respond with grace and compassion and kindness and learn to let go of wrongs. Come back to the cross tonight and start learning how to turn away from hate and how to live a life of love. Let's pray. Our Father God, we find it extraordinary that you would respond with love and forgiveness when we deserved just anger, holy wrath. And we pray that as we receive your forgiveness and your love, that we would learn to forgive and love others. Father, help us not only to be those who do not murder, not only to be those who... uh, who battle against our anger, would you help us to be those who are marked by a 
a barely comprehensible love, a love that's undeserved, a love that reaches out to everybody, a love that turns hate around and responds with kindness. Amen. Look, I'm aware that um, there will be some uh, for whom it's very, very hard to hear talk about love and forgiveness, uh, especially if things are particularly raw for you. And lots of things that the Bible talks about, it takes us years to work out. Uh, it's, you, you don't always just walk out of a room one night and everything's changed. Uh, but God's power at the cross is real. And so don't, if you've been really stirred up by what you've heard tonight, then uh, please don't walk away feeling um, uh, crushed by the, the need to forgive or confused by it. Do come and chat to me or somebody else. I'd love to talk with you. Love to pray with you. Love to help you see the power of the cross that's available for all of us.